Hello. We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Looking at the topic of the danger of selfish anger. We pick up in verse 21. The Lord Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fires. So, if if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pause just for a moment to pray. God, we pray that this word would speak to us this morning. We pray that you would give us insight and wisdom through your spirit. And we ask this in the strong name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but there's always this one person in your life who can just really set you off, right? Some, most of the time, you're related to that person. That's just the way that it works. I'm not sure why. But for me, I, all of the things that people have said over the years about redheaded people, when I was a child... A caveat, when I was a child, those things were very accurate about me. So the people that would say that redheaded people just have terrible tempers, oh my goodness, did I have a temper. When I was a kid, there was one person that I, could, I knew always, he always knew the right thing to say at the right moment to just really dig in, and I would freak out on him. And of course, that person's my brother. I mean, this is the way the, the world works, I guess. Maybe the Lord does that for your growth and sanctification. I don't know. But I remember on one particular occasion, on one, one, one time, our family had gone out west, and we were in Colorado on a mission trip, and uh, many of my friends had gone, and, and we were all in this, this wonderful like, little cabin area, and there was woods, and there was mountain hills, and I mean, it was just a beautiful place. And for a young boy, like, there's nothing better than that kind of a place to go and explore I mean, you're in Colorado. What in the world are you doing inside? And so I would talk to them. I said, guys, why, why are you wanting to play board games? Good gracious. Let's go outside. Let's go do something. Let's go, let's go climb a tree. Let's go, you know, do something besides stay inside. And my brother, they're all kind of huddled around this, this table. And my brother says to me, he's like, Luke, stop being a baby. Play a board game. And then maybe somebody would want to play with you. 
And like, it was something inside me just like snapped. Baby? Baby, really? And I upended the board game, launched myself across the table and tackled him. And you know, in my mind, like that split second before you actually do something like that, you're just like, oh, I'm going to show you. Like, this is, this is going to be bad for you, my friend. This is going to be bad for you. And it turned out the opposite of what I had thought in my head in that split second. It wasn't really bad for him, but it was actually bad for me. And he easily flipped me, threw me on the ground, and then held me down. And I'm squirming and fighting and trying to get out and anger. You know, it's like that anger where you can't actually say coherent things, you know. And it's spit and it, oh, I'm so angry, you know, all this. And he held me there until I was calm. And he said, okay, you need to say you're sorry and I'll let you up. And, oh. You know, then it begins again. But the whole process took more time than it would have probably to just sit down and play the stupid game and then people would go play. But I was angry, angry because I felt like it was unjustified what he said about me. Angry because he had controlled me. And I was at his mercy. Everything at that point was up to him. And I didn't like that. I was angry about it, what had, what had taken place. All of us, now maybe you don't jump across tables, maybe you do, we have anger problems so many times. And it's not just the, I get angry and then I shout things. I think sometimes we, we have this misunderstanding about anger that, that you're not an angry person if you don't shout things, or if you don't throw dishes, or if you don't slam doors. The truth is, anger can be a silent a silent killer inside you, or it can be something that's very verbal. And so what Jesus is talking about here in this passage is this issue of selfish, unrighteous kinds of anger. So we come back to the Sermon on the Mount today. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's giving us what it would look like for people to live in the kingdom of Christ. This is kind of the, the lifestyle of the kingdom of God, is what Jesus is, is explaining to us. And, and, and this is probably one of the, the, uh, the most, I don't know, radically ethical standards that's ever been articulated uh, in human history. Here Jesus is just profoundly explaining to us, what does it look like to be a follower of mine. If you want to be my disciple, well, it, me it means these things. As he paints this, this picture of these characteristic qualities that we find in the Beatitudes. And then he says the, the function of being a disciple means that you have to be, you have to be salt, which means you have, to, you have to be a change agent in your, in your context, but then you also have to be light. So in a dark place where there is no light, you are to be the beacon of hope that, that proclaims the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now we see over and over in this, in this sermon what Jesus says. He says again in verse 21, he says, you have heard it is said of old, but I say to you. He's bringing this, this authority. He's, he's saying the one that spoke a long time ago was Moses. Moses said this, but I'm saying something even more detailed, even more uh, important than what Moses has said. And when we look at this passage, we have to recognize the fact that Jesus, when we put him into context for the rest of scriptures, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, other accounts of Jesus' life, Jesus is not claiming here that all anger is sin. You have to understand that. The Hebrew word for anger occurs 455 times in the Old Testament. 375 of those times are in relationship to the anger of God. 
So anger itself is not the sin, but it's the motivation or the reasoning behind the anger. The Lord gets angry. Nahum the prophet, Nahum chapter 1, he says, Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of God's anger? I mean, even Jesus, when we look at the Gospels, Jesus gets angry at times. We looked at Mark chapter 3 this last Wednesday. Grant preached a sermon about this man who is in the synagogue, and he has a withered hand, and the Pharisees are looking at Jesus, and they're trying to, to figure out whether or not Jesus is going to trounce all over their understandings of the Sabbath. And so Jesus, in his, in his frustration, it says in verse 5, in chapter 3, he says, and Jesus looked around at them, he's talking about the Pharisees, and with anger. Why? He's grieved at the hardness of their hearts, that's what it says. It burned Jesus up to see religious people caring more about the rules than they cared about the people. Jesus became angry when people were hurt. Jesus became angry when God's house was desecrated. But Jesus' anger was never selfish. Paul even says some very interesting things. Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, which totally throws us off most of the time. He says, be angry, but... Do not sin. So when we begin to say that anger itself is the sin, that's where we have a problem. Paul doesn't seem to think that. The anger is not the issue. It's the reasons behind the anger. It's the heart. We ought to get angry about certain things that we find in society. We ought to get upset. We ought to get frustrated. It ought to anger us that young women are being victimized by by businesses that exploit sex in our country, whether it's the porn culture, whether it's the strip clubs downtown, whatever it might be. We ought to be angry that over one million children are murdered every single year in this country through abortion, primarily because it's an inconvenience to someone else's life, and so we take theirs. That ought to bring about anger. We call this kind of anger righteous indignation. It's a godly anger. We're angry because there is offenses being made to God about who human beings are, what God has created, the value and worth of God because of what He's created. He's, we see his, his, his value through the things that He has made. Now, that is not the kind of anger that Jesus is condemning in the Sermon on the Mount. He's attacking something much more common to all of us. Much more common. Something that, that lurks inside every single one of our hearts. It's a selfish kind of anger. The anger that, that the kind of anger that James says does not produce the righteousness of God. That kind of anger. It's the kind of anger that Paul refers to in Colossians 3 when he says, put off all anger and wrath and malice. That kind of anger. So when we think back about the story that I told you at the beginning about myself, I was angry. Why? Because it was all about me. I was angry because people weren't doing what I wanted them to do. People weren't treating me with the kind of respect that I demanded. People didn't do the things that I thought were the best things to do. And so as a result, I became very angry. Anger is a killer of relationships. Anger can destroy a relationship, whether it's voiced anger or whether that anger is kept silent in your own heart. Anger that oftentimes is kept silent is even more dangerous. 
turning to bitterness, and then eventually into hateful behaviors. So this morning, as we look at this text, we're going to discover how God feels about our anger and what he expects of his disciples in relationship to that anger. So let's look, first of all, at this misunderstanding of the commandment. Look back at verse 21 with me. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus begins this explanation of God's law with with the subject of murder. And then he quotes from the the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. He's quoting from the Old Testament there. Now this last portion, it's kind of an add-on from what we find in the the Ten Commandments. The last portion is accurate according to Old Testament law. Anyone who unlawfully took the life of another person was subject to capital punishment under the Old Covenant. The only problem was with this traditional interpretation is it simply wasn't narrow enough to get the full understanding of what God was saying through the commandment. So when we think about murder today, we define it in this way. Murder is the offense of unlawfully killing a human being with malice expressed or implied. And Jesus explains that he's concerned with something even more sinister. Something that is hidden, a hidden anger of the heart that, that, that gives birth to this idea of murder. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he takes back this theological bow and he just shoots the arrow right into the heart of the problem for us. This statement's really hard to hear. He says that, that men are men and women, we're not, we're not just held accountable to the things that we do. Because that was the thought from the Old, Old Testament. It's the things that you do. So if you can control the things that you do, if you can be compliant to what the law has said and do those things, then you're good. But what Jesus is saying, it's not just about the things that you're doing. It's about the content of your heart. That's the problem. That's the real, deep, abiding problem. It's also, careful, or it's also important for us to understand that, that Jesus is not saying that anger and murder are the same thing. I hear people say that, and it's not true. It's like saying lust and adultery are the same thing. That's not true either. They're related but they're different. Both are sin. Anger is the beginning point of hate, and hate comes to its full measure in murder. Murder takes the life of another person. Anger destroys your life. Anger and murder both show the depravity of the human heart, and both of them, Jesus is saying, will bring us before the judgment of God. So we see that the, the commandment has been misunderstood. Now look, look with me at the sin of selfish anger. Look at verse 22 specifically. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Everyone insu- everyone, excuse me, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
Now, Jesus is not condemning all anger in these verses. He's specific. Righteous anger, Jesus displays that himself. We've already talked about that. When he kicked the money changers out of the temple, he displays this righteous anger for the house of God. So let's define what, what, the, what the difference is between righteous anger and unrighteous anger or, or selfish anger. Righteous indignation, righteous anger is motivated by a love for God, by a love for God's rules, by a love for God's word, by a love for what God loves. Selfish anger is not motivated by that. Selfish anger or unrighteous anger is motivated by our need to justify ourselves. See how anti-gospel that is? We get angry because we want to justify ourselves. We want to show that we deserve respect, that we deserve love. And so we become angry when we feel like we don't get what we want. That's the difference between unrighteous anger, selfish anger, and righteous anger. So, question then. When you get angry, how often is it because you are so very upset because God's righteousness seems to be put in peril? God's righteousness, God's goodness, God's word is being questioned. And so you become indignant in your heart because of that. Is that most often for you? Or is it usually because someone said something to you that you didn't like? Someone did something that you feel like slighted you. You feel like someone disrespected you or someone, someone did something that you feel like wasn't justified. Look at verse 22. Let's unpack that together. He uses two terms here. One of them we don't even really see in our English translation. The first word that he's, doesn't actually come through in the, in the English translation is the word raka, which is an Aramaic term or a Hebrew term. Uh, literally, it means empty-headed. You call somebody empty-headed. You insult them. Modern day of saying this might be something like, you're a numbskull, or you're... You're an idiot or a nitwit or a blockhead or a bonehead or a jerk or whatever. I mean, you, maybe you've called people these things, right? Maybe you've been called these things. Whatever. To call someone raka, to call someone this in a serious way is to demote that person to the level of a nobody. You're nothing. You're nobody. What you're saying is that person is not worth anything. And God says that this kind of contemptuous anger, the devaluing of a person, is sin. Why? Well, all people were created in the image of God. That's what we find in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. So we're to consider every human being. It doesn't matter how nasty they might act. It doesn't matter how, how, uh, what where they find themselves on the spectrum of economic uh, stability. It doesn't matter if they're addicted to drugs. It doesn't matter if they're swinging on a stripper pole. Every single person matters and is worth something. Why? Because of themselves and who they are and their good state. No, it's because of God. Because God created them in His image. So, so that stamp of God's image upon every human life signifies that there is value. The second term that Jesus used is more, 
We get the English word moron from this term. But its meaning is, is not really related to how smart the person is. Oftentimes we use the term moron to signify stupidity. That's not exactly what it's going for. Um, the word really is more of a, a moral judgment upon a person. And so uh, it's, it's usually applied in the, in the Old Testament when, when someone denies God's existence and as a result they fall further and further and further into sin and evil. Uh, something like the psalmist would say, there, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So it's a, it's a, it's a moral statement about who this person is. So Raka expresses contempt for a man's head, for a person's head, saying something like, you're stupid. Moros expresses contempt for his heart and for his character, saying something like, you're a scoundrel, you're evil. Jesus is condemning angry contempt on every level. He explains that anger will land you in hell. That's exactly what he says. The Apostle Paul, he goes on and he explains to us, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the way that we relate to this idea of anger is very interwoven with the gospel. The fact that forgiveness has been granted to us means that we ought to then grant forgiveness and have patience. That leads us to our final point. We look at the importance of reconciliation. Look at verse 23, down to verse 26. He says, so, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus, in this passage, gives us two examples of how a disciple should respond to what he's saying about anger. In the first picture, you get this you, get, you see this man who's entered the temple of Herod, and, and he's gone through uh, the process of getting there, right? He's gone through this ritual mikvah bath. So he's walked up, he's gone down the, the one path for the people that are dirty and that need cleansing, walks down into the bath, and he turns around in the bath, comes back up, doesn't touch anybody on the other side. It's a whole process. takes time. There's lines that are formed. So he's clean now, in different robes, able then to enter into the court, into the, into the temple court. So he goes and he purchases his animal. Once he has his animal, he makes his way now through the, the different courts. He goes to the court of Gentiles. He passes through the court of women. And then he gets to the court of men. And there before him is the court of priests. So he's made this morning-long journey to get to where he's at. The altar is next. He has his sacrifice. And then it dawns on him, oh, wait. My brother has something against me. We had an argument, or I owe him money, and he's angry, and, and rightfully so, and I need to make that right. And so what does he do? He turns around, has to take the animal back, can't take the animal home, belongs to the Lord, takes the animal back, walks back out 
of the city, probably to another portion of the city, to find his brother, to make amends. And then he has to spend the time to go through all of that process once again in order to get to the altar to make his sacrifice. But it's important that he doesn't enter into this worship experience at the altar while he's still living in sin. Jesus says, this is how important reconciliation is. It's, it's, it's important enough to inconvenience your life. It's important enough to pause, to take care of the issues that we have in regards to our sin against other people. How often do you come to church with unresolved conflict. And you wake up late on a Sunday morning, that's annoying anyway. And then it's like everybody in your house has become a, a rebel. Nobody wants to get dressed, nobody wants to wear the clothes they're supposed to wear, nobody wants to wear the shoes they want to wear, and there's anarchy in the home. And then maybe there's breakfast that has to take place, right? And so nobody's happy with what's available. There's no milk. And so breakfast ends up all over the place. There's no clothes that are pressed and clean and ready to be worn. So you have to go down, you have to press it. On the way to church, you realize, oh man, I can't remember if I turn the iron off or not. And so an argument ensues. You're going to burn the house down. Oh, it's not my fault. You should have pressed it last week. And, and you have all of these different conversations. There's name calling that happens. There's then silent, and that kind of thing. And turning away and all this kind of stuff. You get to church. Get out, slam doors, get people out of their seats, you walk your way into the church, and then what happens? Hey, how are y'all doing today? Good to see you. Good to see you. Oh, I'm so glad you're here, right? We turn all smiles. Begin to do the things that are expected of us. Friends, God is not impressed with that. We might think that our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe they're impressed by it. That we can just do so much, and yet, you know, everything seems to be okay. God's not impressed. He knows the heart. He knows that there's a need for reconciliation. And it's far more important to reconcile with your neighbor, or reconcile with your spouse, or reconcile with your children, than it is to fulfill external obedience in worship. Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist says, if I cherished sin in my heart, if I held on to the sin, I'm right. It was not my fault. They should have responded differently when I critiqued them about that. Right? You cherish the sin in your heart. It says the Lord would not have listened. Peter gives advice to husbands that I think applies to all of us. We think about the relationship that we have, not with just our spouses, but with other people, and the way that we treat people. Our, our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationship with the Lord. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to them as, the, uh, as a woman, as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Here's the key. So that your prayers may not be hindered. So the relationship that you have with your spouse, the relationship that you have with your children, the relationship that you have with your coworkers or your neighbors, those really matter and it affects your spiritual life. It affects your relationship with the Lord. So Jesus is saying to us this morning, get rid of the anger. 
because it really will destroy your life. Let go of your anger and instead embrace forgiveness. So just a couple of observations about reconciling in your relationships. The first is this, kind of these observations coming from the text. Be conscious of your sin. Be conscious of your words. Be conscious of your actions. Because words really do matter. Behaviors really do matter. And then also, correct your wrongs. It's not okay to recognize that you're wrong or that you said something that was hurtful to someone else and just feel like that just needs to be left alone. If you bring it back up, then it's just opening wounds. It's not going to be helpful. People are going to get more irritated, more angry. No. You have to own it. You have to correct the wrongs. Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So it doesn't matter if you feel like they shouldn't have said that. When you, when you respond in kind, that's sin. That's retaliation. You can't own somebody else's sin. That just, you, your sin belongs to you. Own it. Number three, act immediately. Have a short account with sin. It should be a daily thing for you. If you allow things to go on and on and on and fester in your life, anger to build up, bitterness to build up, isolation to build up, friends, this is a problem. We have to act immediately. We recognize that something has taken place. We need to act upon it and be humble about it. Number four, this is the key. Ask Jesus to change your heart. Because you can't change your own heart. We know that. Ask the Lord to give you a new heart, to transform it, to make you more like him, more loving, more humble, more gracious and patient. Last week, we found that Christ's righteousness can present us holy and acceptable before God. It's only through his righteousness. Today, we understand that if we embrace Christ's righteousness, we will not only refrain from killing people, but will develop hearts that are liberated from the things that actually cause murder, which is anger, selfish anger. We'll be conscious about the way that we speak to other people and we'll, we'll behave differently towards them as a result. Because none of us here today, we're, none of us are perfect. None of us are, are perfect and, and that we don't need God's grace and God's God's transforming power through His Spirit. We all are in desperate need of transformation that can only take place through Christ. Some of us here this morning, maybe we're spiritually dry because we've allowed anger to fester. We've allowed anger to settle in. It's become bitterness in our souls and it's a poison to us. It's caused our relationship with the Lord to falter. We're dry. We're brittle. We're like a leaf blowing down the street. We just don't feel any purpose right now. We know that there's a problem. We know that it needs to be addressed, but we're not willing to have the courage to actually do anything about it. Friends, I invite you in the next few moments to remember the offenses that you have towards those who are closest to you. Think about those things that have caused anger to well up within you 
things that maybe happened years ago, things that you need to let go, bitterness that is there, bitterness that is, that is hurting you. Friends, and clean the slate this morning. Repent, believe the truth of the gospel, go to your brother, go to your sister, go to your spouse, and reconcile this morning. Let's pray. Father, you are so very gracious to us, so very gracious in that you give us Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Lord, would you help us today as we think about this, this concept of, of anger and we think about the sin that is so very rampant in our hearts and we recognize that it's not just vocal anger, but it's that silent killer that rests within our own heart. So many times, Lord, it's just it's withering our soul because we allow it to have such a foothold. God, would you please... Give us courage to right the wrongs. Give us the boldness to go to the ones whom we have hurt or have hurt us. And Lord, grant reconciliation through the, your spirit that we might have unity, even as the scripture said that we read of the invocation. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name.